You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing, and of course, where we also take some of your questions. But today, we're going to deviate a little bit from our usual format, because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, namely Peter Borish, a true legend in our industry, and I'm sure a lot of you are already familiar with Peter. So let me start out by saying welcome to you, Peter. Welcome to the show. With pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you here, but of course, as usual, I should also say good afternoon to you, Jerry, and good evening to you, Moritz. Hi, Niels. Hi, yes. Jerry. Hello. Now, of course, we very much look forward to diving into your world, Peter, uh, and um, you know, find out what you've learned over the last few decades from being in the trenches. But before we do that, we normally do a quick review of the past week from the lens of a trend follower. So uh, perhaps while you have an extra cup of coffee, we'll quickly go through some of the highlights from uh, the last week or so. Um, we're going to do a quick one, quick review uh, this week, just so we have uh, as much time with Peter as possible. Um, now, uh, from my point of view and things that caught my eye, I mean, obviously it was a week where I guess there was a little bit in terms of at least the perception of risk being reduced in uh, relationship to some of the political issues we saw around the world this week, China and the US, the trade war, of course, uh, you know, the protests in Hong Kong, people thought was uh, cooling off a little bit. Uh, we'll see about that. And all of this led to a bit of a backup in yields, a weakening of the dollar and gold. So from a trend following perspective, uh, a sell off in some of the safe assets that have been uh, doing well for us. Um, and then, of course, the week finished off with uh, uh, a jobs report in the US, a bit on the weak side, as far as I'm aware. Um, and that kind of reminded market participants that maybe these trends are not completely over. Um, anyway, uh, a week of corrections, I, I would say. Uh, Moritz, how was, take us into your world of trend following. How was the week? Well, you've just made a good summary. It's been just like you said. Um, you know, I think I had two up days, but overall the week was uh, fairly negative. Um, down more than 3% uh, as a result of, you know, we're, we're pretty long the bonds, we're long gold, we're long silver, all of that moved down. Um, Bitcoin around, you know, 10,000 sitting there, not really moving at the moment. Um, also, I, you know, I see that the emissions contract, European emissions, which, uh, you know, I'm still long, struggling a bit, uh, given the background of Brexit. Um, but, you know, what can you do? I mean, you know, uh, it's been a good year so far. Uh, every once in a while, those setbacks come on, come along, and um, we just take them. But I didn't get kicked out of any of the long positions, so portfolio is still pretty stable. Sure, sure. I mean, from our, <clears throat> from our point of view, it certainly also was a week of giving back some of the recent uh, performance, um, you know, roughly in the same uh, region as, as you, Moritz. Um, fixed income and currencies were really the two uh, difficult ones. Um, some offset uh, in terms of uh, offsetting some of those losses um, came from stocks. Um, softs and grains actually were okay. Uh, metals for us, uh, pretty flat for the week. Um 
And, um, you know, if you look around the world and you see how politics are being done and conducted at the moment, not least here in Europe, it's kind of hard to see that some of these issues will be resolved anytime soon. So uh, I'm sure we'll have to continue to expect volatility uh, in the markets, but also in our performance uh, as we as we always do. What about you, Jerry? Um, how was how was the week on on your side? Uh, well, I just remember the massive uh, sell-offs in gold and silver, and so not not surprising to be expected to have uh, big moves like that. You're going to have some <clears throat> pullbacks, and it can be similarly volatile and crazy, or maybe those trends are over. Who knows? But um, those were the ones that stood out. Uh, I'm glad Peter's here because he can explain some of this stuff to all of us guys who just follow trends, because I think at one point we were worried about the stock market and their earnings and the recession and the inverted yield curve. But now that we had a weakening of the economy, I guess, or the employment, that helped stocks uh, because maybe we'll get those however many interest rates are built in. So as much as I like to understand or follow that or keep track of it, I don't try to ignore it uh, while, I, while I'm placing my trades. Yeah. No, I'm sure Peter will help us figure all of this out. But before we jump uh, into our conversation with Peter, um, it is, in fact, the one-year anniversary for uh, this little podcast series. And uh, one of our listeners, Jim, very kindly uh, took us up on this new voicemail feature. Uh, so let me just play what Jim left in terms of voicemail. Good morning, gentlemen. Happy one-year podcast anniversary from Fort Myers, Florida. This is Jim. I enjoy the podcast every week. Several of them I've listened to several times and always get glean some great information from them. Enjoy seeing you guys in October and getting together and learning some trend-following techniques and tricks. Thanks, guys, and happy anniversary. Jim, thanks so much for your kind words and anniversary wishes. Uh, we all very much like uh, look forward to seeing you as well at our New York uh, live event in only a few weeks. And of course, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can. We will try and share it on air as well. Uh, just go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash voicemail. Okay, let's turn our attention to our special guest uh, on this one year anniversary edition of the Systematic Investor Series. I think, Peter, you are really the perfect guest to have on the show for this because I think systematic investing really has been, um, you know, a big part of your career. So uh, maybe to frame our uh, conversation today, why don't you remind everyone of uh, how you kind of originally got involved in, uh, in, in this industry? Well, thanks. It's a pleasure. As I said before, and it's a one-year anniversary, and that's an honor as well. I, I was very lucky. I was working at the New York Fed uh, in the early 80s. And if you think about it, uh, my career has arced the development of uh, futures markets. I started work in 1982, and S&P Futures started in 1982. I was recruited out of the Fed by this young guy coming off the floor of uh, the Cotton Exchange by the name of Paul Tudor Jones in 1985. And lo and behold, crude oil futures started trading uh, 
1985. So we were fortunate in the sense of applying discipline, methodology, and certainly risk management to a lot of new markets that were coming online. In the late 80s, it was uh, Japan, and by the early 90s, it was a global market uh, with Europe, which just meant that one had to learn not to sleep because it's a 24-hour world and they're all linked. Uh, the irony is that Paul in, is an unbelievably great discretionary trader. Uh, and the difference between discretionary trading and sort of systematic trading is that in a discretionary trader, you can sort of uh, have your size variable relative to the opportunity. So if you think it's a very small risk, you could take a bigger position. So assume you're risking certain number of basis points per trade. In a systematic trading, uh, you don't know because it's a sort of equal probability of distribution of your signal. So you have sort of a similar unit sizes across markets. And what Paul uh, gave me the assignment on early on was, you know what? When guys like Jerry are really doing well, I'm not doing so well. And he said, why is that? And so after I spent a bunch of time trying to convince myself that Jerry was just lucky uh, and not good, I realized that wasn't the case and that uh, he was good. I'm obviously being facetious there. And uh, I was had a research at Tudor, and then we set up a subsidiary called Tudor Systems Corporation. And my job was to try to develop models that would keep you in a market when it's moving. And that is a huge difference. A systematic person, and Jerry just alluded to this, will – it forces you to stay in a market. Systematic traders are the only ones that were dumb enough to stay long JGBs when they were going from one and a half to one, from one to 50 basis points, down to 25, down to zero. Because everybody says, oh, it's totally irrational. And now today we're seeing the buns at minus 70, the same thing. So one, I always say you have to trade your own personality. So when you develop a model or a system, the characteristics have to reflect the author of that system in terms of what kind of volatility can they handle, what type of drawdown can they handle. And the notion of being a systematic trader or a discretionary trader is also a function of your approach to markets. It worked for us really well at Tudor because we had that complementary style. It was almost an internal diversification of approaches. And then I left and I had my own CTA, which was 100% model-based. Mart, do you want to dig in with a few of your uh, thoughts? Thanks, Peter. Um, great to have you on the show. Maybe just you know to, to go back, you've mentioned you started working at the Fed and then and then uh, moved on to Tudor. I mean, what initially sparked your interest in trading? Um, were you always interested in the markets or was there kind of like, like one moment at the Fed or when you first met Paul, um, when that happened? Really good question. So it's funny because I started at the Fed in uh, international research. And at the time, uh, it was what was called the LDC, uh, Lesser Developed Countries, which we call emerging markets today. And they were talking about the debt situation in, in Mexico. And they said, oh, you know, crude oil is this. If we could just get Mexico to pump a lot more oil, 
and given the price of this, they'd get a lot more revenue. And I made the mistake in the meeting of holding my hand up and said, wait a second, if they pump a lot more oil, that's going to add to supply. Isn't that going to force the price down? We're going to need some type of dynamic pricing model. And that's when they moved me out of sort of direct research and down into uh, covering more futures and options and trying to build some models around that. And that's so each step of the way. And then when I went from the Fed to Tudor, and of course, Paul's personality and his tremendous skill, and I learned early on that if I gave Paul the exact low in the exact high in a market, he would still make a lot more money than I would because he's a much better trader. And by the way, usually I'm much better at buying the exact high and selling the exact low than the other way around. What about you, Jerry? What are your... Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm really interested in, uh, selfishly, your opinions on uh, me personally and then CTAs in general and uh, how you've seen it evolve over the years and uh, the, the way the industry has... You've been in it, you've kind of been out of it, you did it differently, uh, but uh, and you've seen a lot of smart people who... Had a blend, as you said, you know, maybe didn't talk about trend as much as the trend followers. And I think that oh, I'm interested in your opinion on that as well. Are we talking too much about it? Uh, have we been too successful in telling people how easy and simple trend following is? Has that hurt the industry and the AUM? Uh, where do you see CTAs today, or at least a few months ago when it was a lot worse? And uh, how do you see them getting better for the future? So... First of all, I'm going to talk my own book for a second because our business now is accelerating emerging managers. So we're always looking for talent. And, and in the sense of if there's a new and emerging CTA out there, I'm definitely interested in, 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 in the data and doing research along those lines. In a diversified portfolio of markets and trading, you need all the different types of strategies. The issue for me with most of the longer term CTAs is the question of, are you maximizing profits or are you running a business? There's two different things where if you're sort of primarily trading your own assets, you can do that. If you're trading uh, a business, then volatility matters and the magnitude of that drawdown matters. And so the biggest issue has always been when there's like a really huge move. So we'll take the the two days of silver last week if you and and i spent a lot of time doing research on this if you take all the daily moves of silver in terms of percentage changes and then you bin them and you're saying wait a second this is a 95 percent two-day move in silver but my stop is way way far away that becomes the business question because you may want to stay in that trade, but if you're an investor with somebody like that, and you're, every investor marks their P&L to the high tick. So that becomes the tricky part. Do you say, well, this is a 95% move. Do I get out? Do I buy? And, and not get out 100%, because I don't think you should ever do that. But if you realize there's going to be some volatility and the signal is still long, do I utilize technology and then try to buy the pullback? So I, I start with a lot of these things saying, if I were God, and that would be nice, of course, but uh, if I could go back and I'll look at all my signals and I look at what percentage change of open trade equity do I give back from the high to where I exit? And I think that that is where 
more people should be focusing on their research. So I've always said that entry is easy, exit is hard. So at the time in systematic, and that's why I'm a big fan, the time you initiate the trade, the risk reward is unbelievable. The irony is the faster you make money, the worse it can be because you can't move your stop. So trading in the way I view it is more of a second derivative issue, right? The rate of speed rather than a first derivative. And so that's where we focus and that's where we're looking for a lot of the innovation in terms of of research. So it's not, you know, do you like it? Do you not like it? Of course, I like it because as I said before, the systematic CTA are the only ones that are gonna stay in a market when the consensus is it's irrational. Yeah, I've, I've said that a little bit differently over the years. And I've said, uh, is proper trading, can it be a, a good business? And I think you're sort of saying, well, it's tough. Uh, you have to, you look at your research, you look at the numbers, and then you have to say, oh, but my clients uh, won't, won't enjoy that. And so maybe I'll have to tweak it a little bit. Absolutely. So if you buy a stock and you're an individual, it's down 10%, you buy a little more. If it's down 20%, you buy some more. If it's down 30, maybe you sell it. In our world, if you're a manager and you're down 10%, people are freaking out. It's just the approach and the mentality, and you have to realize that if you're trying to grow assets and build a business. So the path really matters, and that's frustrating to me because I guarantee you that I've had more 10% drawdowns than I would like to uh, count and we've always knock on wood come back to new high ground yeah no i'm sure there's more in that area that uh, that we can talk about later but i i wanted to uh, just stay a little bit with uh, your relationship with uh, paul tudor jones but i don't know if you can i don't know if you can answer this question i'm gonna i'm gonna try anyway um and um, it, it kind of relates to your own role i, th I think in, in 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 your bio i saw that that it's also referred to you uh, that you do some some coaching uh, trading coaching um so may maybe there's a little bit of there we can we can use but i think i first came across uh, this particular point was when i uh, i bought uh, tony robbins's book called money master the game and in, in in the book, of course, he shares lessons with, uh, you know, from conversations with many of the most successful investors. I'm sure Paul Tudor Jones is one of them. But since I became aware of the book, um, often when I hear Tony Robbins talk about his relationship uh, with Paul, he says that, uh, and I'm I'm quoting him. He says that he he has coached him every day for twenty plus years, uh, and since I started coaching him, he's never had a down year. So, so of course, I would love to hear kind of any insights that you might have uh, on on this. But also, you know, if if a legend like Paul Tudor Jones needs a coach, what does it tell us about how hard it is to succeed in 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 this business? Well, I can't really comment, you know, with Paul and Tony. I'm not I'm not in the room there. But what I can say, and what I do say to everyone of our traders, whether they're discretionary or systematic in terms of doing research. Now, the thing with systematic is it's almost the opposite because you have to totally follow your discipline. Everybody gets so scared and proprietary and signals. And I was always like, look, I could put my signals up in the middle of Times Square because when we're in a drawdown, no one's going to follow them. The, the, the issue for an investor 
And, and you know, when you're making money, everybody thinks, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. And they want to follow you. And then when you go into a drawdown, well, you're lucky. The world has changed. The model has changed. Everything is different. Now, of course, technology has changed. Executions changed. Trading costs have changed. And I do think that when we started and Jerry started, right, the cost of data was high. The cost of execution was high. The cost of trading was high. So it made sense in a lot of ways to have a longer time frame. Now, when you take the other extreme, whether you're thinking about Renaissance or Citadel or Two Sigma, all those costs have gone down dramatically. So they're on the other extreme and they're trading extraordinarily uh, frequently. And I think that the balance is somewhere in the middle. I think markets spend a lot of time doing nothing and then they reprice. So going back to your notion of coaching, I don't care how great you are. And Paul's the greatest, but I tell when I sit down with our guys, I'm like, every time there's a film session, Tom Brady has a coach in there with him looking at the film. You're analyzing the game. You're doing research. You're trying to get better. It's not like the coach. I'm not saying I'm better. The coach is saying he's better than Tom Brady. What he's saying is you're bringing experience and perspective and the better you know yourself and the more you're willing to open up and discuss that whether that's your systematic research that you're doing as a systems developer or whether that's analyzing your discretionary trades, the better you're going to be. A good coach puts somebody in a position to succeed. I can tell you for sure when I was working with Paul, we never had a situation where I told you so. If I thought something was going to happen and it didn't happen and he didn't do it, he wouldn't go, oh, Pete, you're an idiot. And I certainly, if I thought something was going to happen and he didn't agree and it did happen, I would never go knock on the door and say, I told you so. That is not the relationship between partners and that is not the relationship between uh, a participant and a coach. Now, of course, I can certainly understand that uh, as a discretionary trader, it makes a lot of sense uh, with, with with coaching, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How, um, but as a but if we focus on say systematic traders, do, do you think we all need coaches? I mean, we kind of the three of us when we do our weekly podcast, we kind of say that this is kind of our our uh, way of, of of mentally help each other, you know, through the the tough times. But I mean, as systematic traders. Uh, of course, we we also uh, I guess it's also nice to be confirmed uh, during the tough times, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I so do you think that actually both, whether you're discretionary or systematic, that 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 coaching is 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 um, perhaps even essential for for uh, for true true success? Or I think I I think it's essential uh, on the systematic way in 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 a couple of processes. One. When you have a bad drawdown, it's really nice to be able to have someone to talk to when you go sit on their couch in their office or you're talking to them and you go, why the hell am I in this business? Because it stinks. And you need somebody to keep you from losing your discipline because it's always a tendency for the system creator during a drawdown to try to go tinker with it and change something new because you can look at it. So I call it the notion of creeping intellectual cheating. We've all been in the markets for decades. We know what's happened. So it's a real tendency to say, I can optimize, even though I'm 
not trying to optimize, what's happened by using my prior historical information. So you need somebody to really bounce ideas off of to make sure you're not doing that creeping intellectual cheating. And then secondly, one of the issues is the selection of markets. You have your in-sample, you have your out-of-sample, or you have your walk-through. And as I like to say to a lot of CTAs, you're not trading cocoa? Why? Well, it doesn't work. Well, it didn't work historically, so am I cheating? Am I eliminating that market? Am I, again, creeping intellectually cheating? Am I optimizing in some way where I shouldn't be? Do I have too many of the same markets on there? If I'm trading buns, bobble, you know, gilts, bonds, 10 years, JGBs, etc., Canadian bonds, Australian bonds, do I have a diversified or do I have the same bet on 10 different ways? And how do I treat that? That's where research comes into play. If I want to have all them on, perhaps my initial risk per trade should be much smaller. Because the issue with systems, and again, the other research that you want to do is, do you lever up your new signals? So this is the business question. It's month end. I have to readjust my unit size. I just had a great month in August. I've got all this open trade equity. Do I change my unit sizes based on my open trade equity? So now I know that the probability of any given trade, and this is why the discipline is so important, is always a negative. If I don't do a trade, I'm likely to save money. It's the risk-reward of when you do the trades that when you make money, it's three, four, five times to one. So now, if I use increasing my unit sizes based on open trade equity, and I know we're getting into the, to the weeds here, and then I have a new signal, and then that signal is doesn't work, and I have a give back based on my open trade equity, that's how big drawdowns start. So the these are not tinkering with your systems. These are approaches and methodologies that need to be consistent over time. And if you, it's really helpful to have people you can bounce ideas off of. Yeah, I've made all those mistakes. So <clears throat> I think uh, my background sort of uh, lent itself and was encouraged to be an individual trader. And so you may hang out or you may chat a little bit, but not too much. And a lot of the very successful firms in trend following, in systematic trading even, they went out in twos and threes, you know, and they were partners. And uh, all of my friends, we just went out on our own. And I think it's this sort of uh, camaraderie and coaching and holding each other accountable. Let's write down the 10 things we believe in and make sure we're not ever violating those. And when you start your own firm and you start making money, uh, and get successful, you will see a lot of yes men and women. Yes, Jerry, yes, whatever you say. And I think, uh, in hindsight, I think uh, having a couple of trusted partners, you know, who, who there was maybe three people who were the people in charge, that's harder to deviate from what you know you believe, but you can definitely get away from it if no one is calling you out or feels they have the power to, to do that. Well, unlike you, I... I'm not so nice, so I don't have any friends, so that's not really my issue. But I do think that one of the issues and the mistakes that I've made is you're growing a business and somebody says, hey, you know, if you just do this, this, and this, we're going to give you a big allocation. 
So you spend all your time sort of doing this on the hope of getting this allocation. And intellectually, you're like, ah, I don't know if it's really the right thing. I'm sort of, you know, tinkering with my model. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to have fewer markets. I'm trying to reduce the volatility. And you do all this stuff. You spend all the time. And then you go back to the investor and they go, you know what? Things have changed. The markets are going up. I don't need you. And then you do these things and you come back with your track record after a drawdown. And then they go, well, the market went down. I don't have any money to give you. And that's kind of the CTA story and the frustration that we have because we're really good at making money when things get out of whack, right? So we're we're there during instability so if you said to me and you go okay we're at historically concentrated sort of low volatility periods that's not the ideal time to be a cta but is this a new permanent state or is it a transient state now my own view of course is that it's a transient state because i believe in cycles and I, people are like, what do you mean? It's permanent. I go, hey, you know what? My dad just turned, this is true, 92 last week. But I tell my dad, I go, listen, I'm not buying a 115 call. You have to prepare. And every day, wherever we are in this cycle, all I know it's one day closer to the end. And it's one day where closer to where systematic CTAs are likely to outperform for more than just a short period of time. Great, Peter. I love that. Um, I just want to speak a little bit about consistency because that's what we've just touched on. I mean, you know, I think everyone likes to make money every minute, every every day, every year. Our clients like that. We know it's unrealistic, right? So to me, the consistency is to press the button and continue with the system every minute, every day, every month, every year, and not tinker with it too much, right? But then inevitably you have those periods where the system doesn't work so well you know you're in drawdown you're at minus 20 you're at minus 30 and you know i've been there i've never been coached i know how difficult it is to stick with a thing when you're at minus 30 i'm not sure if i could do it if i'm at minus 50 or minus 55 i hope i'll never get there but it's probably terribly hard but you know how do you find the right compromise and the right middle way between sticking to the thing that you've developed and moving it forward through evolution, through new research. And, you know, you've mentioned the exits. Uh, we'd all love to have great exits that, you know, don't, don't whipsaw us and, you know, keep more of the open trade equity. But we know it comes at a cost. Um, so how do, you, how do you find the balance between sticking to a thing as consistently as you can, because that's important, and changing it, because that's a necessity also? So I think it's a question is, as Jerry said, are you trading your own money to maximize it? You can have more volatility or are you trying to run a business? And in which case you have to sort of uh, maximize what your investors are interested in and knowing a priori that they are not going to be able to handle that volatility, then you have to adjust your model for that. Now, whether that means trading smaller positions so that the both sides are going to be every, if everything else stays the same, both sides are going to be uh, curtailed, but the volatility is going to be less. Or two, 
whether you try to develop some systematic approach to have profit objectives to scale out of positions. What you can't do is just randomly feel because then you're just the worst of both worlds. Right? You're trying to be a systematic person and a discretionary person at the same time. And that is totally horrible. Right, right. But I think, you know, my, my point is more like, you know, let's say I'm running a 20 vol system. I can just trade the same system at 10 vol or 5 vol yes. right? and have a, have a smoother experience and my clients may like that better. But um, if we're speaking about consistency and I want to press that button and keep the system running without changing it too much because likelihood is that I'm going to change it at the worst point in time, which is when I am in a drawdown, right? But at the same time, we realize that every once in a while, you know, markets adapt, markets change, you make changes to the system. So how do you find that balance? Like, you know, there's a need to change the system and maybe go through an evolutionary phase, which is contradicting to like sticking with the original version. So when someone walks into my office, whether, you know, they just had the worst day of their life and it's a system or they're a discretionary trader. And I talk to them, I go, I've got good news and bad news for you. And they go, what's that? I go, well, the good news is you're still in business. And they go, so what's the bad news? I go, if you're in business long enough, you're going to have a worse day. Records are made to be broken. So you have to do some, you know, simulations, Monte Carlo research on your model. Just because it's generally speaking a 20 vol, that doesn't mean that you can, can't have 33% or 40% decline. And you need to know that going in and that needs to be disclosed to the investors. When I give sort of this trading presentation to people, one of my slides is, you know, never minimize the pain when looking backwards from a positive outcome. So if we just do a little math here, and, and I don't wanna pick on the equity market, but I tend to enjoy doing that. So if you make, start off with $1,000 and you make 7% a year for 50 years, at the end of that time, you'll have what, uh, 32,000 or make it 100. So you'll have $3,200. And that's a 7% compounded return. If in year 51, you lose 50%, people would totally freak out because you'd have $1,600. But that compounded annual return only declines from about 7% to 5.9. That's the illusion that people have of time and money when looking backwards from a positive outcome. And I can assure you that every single one of us, if we have that kind of drawdown, our investors would be leaving and freaking out where, of course, in the equity market, it's a buying opportunity of a lifetime. Does that um, answer your point, Moritz? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fine. <laughs> Thanks very much. But I okay. think in, I think in general, Moritz, I mean, the, the point you bring up about, I mean, I see it all the time when, 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 when you meet with investors, right? I mean, people want you to evolve, but they don't want you to change, right? So so that that is the balance we're, we're up against. But but I think certainly in our case, on our side, I mean, the research projects are, are typically very long term. So they they are not really uh, impacted at all by, you know, where you are in the performance cycle at the time. So you either find something that you truly believe in, you test it over time, you do all the things you have to do, 
And if it's good enough, um, you know, you might implement it. And but I mean, I think you know, in if if I think back on on Don's you know forty five years of history, I mean, the first change didn't come until two thousand and six. It's a hell of a long time without making a lot of changes. And since then, there's only really been about a handful of important changes. Um, and I think that goes to the to the testament about you know the robustness of some of these strategies, um, really. But I think it's 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 it it is a very interesting topic. Yes, yeah, so I'm just sitting here thinking about <clears throat> things I've read recently. Uh, one of the things that's always floating around the CTA industry, which I don't really think is is uh, always accurate, which is that more education. They just we just need to give them more education. You know, when I was 25, I read about trend following for the first time in my accounting job office, and I was sold right there. Um, it only got more uh, deep and more dedicated and compassionate, passionate about it. Uh, so education, no, I don't, I'm sure that, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world to understand. And then recently I've been reading that uh, clients don't like uh, to think that, why should I pay you uh, to just p- run this system? You're not really doing much work. I don't really like systems. Uh, it feels like you're tied to this and you can't do anything because the system has control over you. And now I, I picked up from uh, another idea from Peter, uh, listening to what uh, everyone's saying, and that is, um, I, I don't like the results of a systematic trader because the results, the system, the back test is saying, uh, hold on to those profits. You know, don't get out of that silver. Silver's fine. Uh, and so bottom line is the you're, you're sort of giving me the impression, that, uh, which makes perfect sense, is that it's the characteristics of the equity curve and the daily performance. I really dislike that. Uh, I marked uh, my P&L to the high tick last month or this month, and now you're down a little bit. So, uh, But to some degree, you got to admit that they probably don't say that about Warren Buffett, or maybe they never said it, or they uh, certainly don't have that attitude about... Um, the stock market in general. So it, it's because it's perception becomes reality because they look backwards and they've seen that they've always come back to new high grounds because they, they understand it. And har- the hardest part for a CTA, and I remember this because I was at a conference in Europe with one of the largest in, at the time uh, trend following CTAs. And he goes, I really have a hard time raising money. I'm like, why is that? Your performance is great. He says, because I go into a meeting and they ask, so what do you have on? And I go, well, I'm long the euro. And he says, well, why are you long the euro? He goes, because it's going up. And then they say, well, uh, when are you going to get out of the euro? And he goes, when it stops going up. And he goes, that's not a particularly exciting meeting. The people that are on the other side of the table, they want to be able to think that they're really intelligent, that they agree with you. Well, there's the interest rate differential, the economies are slowing in the US relative to Europe, so I want to be long to Euro and I have this, this, and this. And they go, okay, that makes sense. And of course, that's what happens in individual equities when they go. And so when that happens and it goes down, they still believe their own story or they don't want to admit that they were incorrect. 
But what Jerry just said, which is funny, is, well, we don't like systems, but what's the hottest thing in the uh, equity space right now? Quantitative strategies, alternative data. As usual, when you think back of since the early 80s, the CTA and futures markets participants have always been far ahead of the curve. We just haven't been as good at accumulating assets. Now, part of that is for regulatory reasons because of the differential between the SEC and the CFTC. And an individual can go online now and trade a you know triple levered ETF being on any kind of uh, SEC account, but they can't go and trade S&P futures, which are cheaper and and better and have a greater return. So there's there's a whole host of reasons, but it goes back to individual investors. And I'm a big sports guy, and you know you think about an international game like uh, the NBA, and the individual investor wants you as the coach or the manager to treat every day like it's game seven of the finals only play six guys only play seven guys and if you do that of course you're gonna not go anywhere over the course of a long season so one of the famous sayings is if you listen to the fans you eventually end up sitting in the stands with them and that's what i was saying earlier about the fact that you have to follow your own discipline and your approach and your methodology because oftentimes you listen to them and that's exactly the wrong thing to do. You kind of um, got into, too, and you and Jerry got into something that I wanted to explore maybe a little bit uh, as well. So for me, at least, sort of behavioral finance is is a relatively new term uh, in, in our industry, at least when it comes to to the acceptance of it, because of course some of the literature uh, literature actually goes back quite a long ways, um, and I think it's a fascinating way, uh, really, to illustrate uh, why being a quant uh, and following rules is is a really good way to overcome uh, the weaknesses we have uh, as human beings when it comes to to investing. So, so I was actually gonna. Uh, ask you, Peter. I mean, if if you were going to do our jobs as trend followers, meaning, and 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 I know you kind of touched a little bit upon it, but I want to go a little bit deeper. I mean, how do you think in in the world we live in today, with the investors' uh, focus uh, as it is today? I mean, how would you pitch kind of this rules-based trend-following approach to make it sound, you know, more appetizing than than uh, you know, what we perhaps see in, in the real world today? Well, that is a, a, a difficult question, but I view it in when, when I s- speak to people, the markets are always trying to make you lose your discipline. A systematic approach to the marketplace, if you actually follow it, which is the hard part, forces you to keep your discipline and the great thing about the intersection of system development and technology is and i'm as guilty as this of anybody i would never like the systematic developer to actually execute the trades because they could talk themselves out of any given trade but when you have the signals whether that's 
in the earlier days, you had a trading desk and you had people executing those signals and their work depended on them actually following that, even if it was really, really difficult. Or today, when you put them in an OMS and it goes out there into the marketplace and you make those trades, the key is following your discipline. That's super tough. The other thing is, like everything else, and in markets more so than anything, after the fact, it's obvious. Everything is obvious. Oh, it was obvious in 07 and 08 that the housing, if it was so obvious, we wouldn't have these kinds of volatility episodes. Everybody's going to say, oh, whenever happens next, I can assure you it's going to be obvious, but it's not. But the discipline of a systematic approach is essential. Most people aren't good at either. They're not good discretionary traders because they can't keep their discipline. And, you know, oh, I'm in a market and this is the biggest difference. I, as Jerry was saying very much earlier, oh, the market's in. I got a little profit. I don't want to give it all back. I'm going to get out. So it's that trade-off between you want the market to tell you what to do. You yourself don't want to tell yourself what to do, but it's easier to listen to yourself than it is to listen to the market. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I still find it incredible when, when, when you hear some of the, the experts talk about, you know, behavioral finance. It, to me, it really sounds logical that the way to, to uh, help yourself uh, overcome that uh, is to, uh, to follow rules that so few people uh, have embraced that. Uh, and even on the kind of institutional investor side, uh, just from pure diversification of investment process, you would think that, uh, you know, what we do uh, adds a lot of value, yet there is a lot of resistance uh, in many shops still uh, to embrace that. And, and we go back to the same thing I'm sure you heard back in the 80s. I mean, it's the black box syndrome. We don't know what's going on, um, yet they think that there are that they know exactly what goes on inside the equities they buy or the uh, various long short uh, equity funds they they seem to love so much. So um, it's it's a an ongoing challenge. It's interesting because every discretionary trader I know says if I just had a system to help me pick and choose my signals, I would do better. And every systematic trader I know says, you know, if I just had the si discretion to pick and choose my signals, I would do better. And you end up with the worst of both worlds. If you're discretionary, you stick with that and your skill set. If you're systematic, you stick with that because it's that one trade that you don't take. So for all of you who are long buns, when they went from, you know, 20 basis points through zero, and every person that you spoke to said, you are totally out of your mind. That's not possible. And then they took out the 16 low of 25 or 30 basis points. They said the same thing. You followed your discipline. That's the key to success over time. Yeah, but uh, let me spend some time uh, thinking about some of the things I'm confused about. One is, because uh, earlier you said something that maybe is, seems uh, different than what you just said, which is uh, at Tudor you had both going on. So I guess what you said was that maybe that uh, Paul wasn't the one doing both. He did his discretion and you had a, dis discretion, you had a systematic 
an, a, a separate part of the company that did some systematic stuff. And so what you're basically saying is don't mix the two. even and, Or maybe you're saying like uh, if you're going to do something that looks discretionary and not uh, typical trend following, make rules for that as well. So if you're going to have profit objectives or get out of some of the silver after just a 95% move, which is not going to be a look good on the back test, okay, that's kind of discretionary, but don't make it discretionary. Make it uh, a rule-based thing that makes it look like you're doing discretionary plus system or traditional long-term systems that are going to look good on the back test. You know, that getting out of silver at 95% is not going to look good. So it's a combination of all threes. Yes, it, the mismatch is just sort of mentally confusing and, and you know, you're going to feel like you're a cosine in a sine world and you're going to be totally out of sync. What I was referring to in the, in, in the case of silver is you're, you're part of when you're building the business is you're, what's the variable you're maximizing? So is it the profitability, which is you're doing by letting it run, or are you looking to maximize or minimize some type of drawdown, in which case I'm going to build in certain profit objectives to try to have a smoother equity curve. So I can do that by saying, in my risk reward, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to get out of silver at at X percent increase uh, from where I got in, and then I have to follow that discipline. Now, in the long run, that may may not maximize my money, but if I'm running a business and I therefore have a smoother curve and I get more assets under management, et cetera, et cetera, that's a different variable I'm trying to maximize. If I'm a discretionary trader and I know from history, then I'm just like, hey, this is a great day. And my goal as a discretionary trader is to end the day with a little more money than I started with is completely different approach than it is as a systematic trader. But in the systems, it's a question of what is the variable you're trying to maximize. Yeah, but I'm laughing because, you know, um, I, I mean, I may be in the minority and I may obviously be wrong. But uh, to me, I, I have to say, you know, the uh, the another, the difference between those two is that uh, – the systematic guy actually has evidence that what he does works in the long term. So, but uh, you know, a funny thing uh, back in two thousand nine, um, UVA investing conference in Charlottesville. I went to it, and Brian and I went to it, and uh, Paul Jones, uh, Lee Ainsley, John Griffin, and Julian Robertson were there. And Paul was trying to uh, get the two fundamental managers. Uh, Ainsley and Griffin to agree, you know, what do you do with this chart? It's a chart with, you know, it's going in a big uptrend or it made a new breakout. And they were like dumbfounded. Well, I don't know. I mean, what do you mean? The chart? And he was like, you got to buy that. You know, you got to always be on the right side of the 200 day moving average. And, uh, you know, those guys were there with their mentor, Julian Robertson. And he, and they were like, no, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about basically, you know, and, uh, I'm not sure about that trend stuff. And, uh, Julian pop, uh, piped up and went, uh, no, 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 I have a, a new respect and uh, a like for trend following. I think it's something, the trend in general, you have to respect it and you have to sort of pay attention to it. And I was like, Brian, we need to get up and leave right now. It's not going to get any better than this. Uh, so I think uh, over the years, I think uh, I've always often just kind of wondered, and I asked you this question before, uh, you know, 
do these famous macro guys, do they kind of pay attention to trend? Is the reason that they uh, have so much money in their management, besides good performance, is because they don't really talk about trend as much as a, a story, you know, owning these stocks. They owned a lot of stocks, more than the CTAs, uh, you know, in, in the past periods where stocks have been the best performer. Uh, just trying to uncover, like, uh, could I have done the same thing if I would have just had a better story and maybe traded more stocks? Uh, and like you say, maybe um, <clears throat> not been a pure trend follower to the degree that I've always been and had profit objectives and managing my equity curve more. So I think the story is there, as I was saying earlier, people like the story, number one. But realistically, what Paul was saying is that you succeed, and we always had this uh, saying, it's discipline before vision. So you can gossip about markets, and you can think it's a good buy, or you can think it's a good sale, but you need that discipline. So whether Paul's saying you have to be on the right side of the 200-day moving average means I'm going to have that discipline because it's the exact opposite of human nature. You know, the funny thing is about the indices today and forcing you to stay long these stocks is that they're cap-weighted indices. So the higher it goes up, the bigger the weight. These are actually the most trend-following characteristics of anything that's out there in the marketplace now. And if it goes down a lot, it has a smaller weight. So it's actually, if you're an investor, you may not be aware of this. You're sort of buying high. And you have to get longer if you want to maintain that index because its weight goes up and vice versa when it goes down. That's almost forcing you to have some sort of discipline. So I think the story is difficult. Uh, part of it is is the, the language, and it's not just education because I've been – Working on this education, I sit on the educational, uh, the Institute for Financial Markets, which is the educational not-for-profit of the Futures Industry Association, and I've been doing that for uh, 30 years, and it's the same thing all the time, uh, more education. The difficulty is that the press, the story is always the outlier, so they like that outlier guy that bought that stock that really went down, and then went up and when you're watching the financial news they talk about the stocks that have gone up they don't then talk about tilray that's down 90 percent they only talked about it on the way up and i promise you this that the people that bought it on the way up for a trade they're hold on to it because now they're investors <laughs> and our approach is a rigorous disciplined approach whether that's systematic or discretionary and you need a governor to tell you you're wrong when you're trading discretionary and the governor that you use when you're in systematic is your history your stops and your ability to get out and the key is surviving to live and trade for another day so peter how do you make sure a discretionary approach is rigorous because like you know as jerry said um, there's no evidence there. There's, there's nothing that you can backtest. You're, you're missing the statistical sample. So how do you make sure that there is consistency in a discretionary approach? Well, it's, it's, it's time and track record. We don't, we don't buy the story. 
in, in our business, you need to have a real-time track record. I know that going forward that returns are not predictable, which is funny, right? Because that's the first line of every disclosure document. Past performance is not indicative of future results, yet that's the first thing that everybody looks at. Well, I'm only going to be in the equity markets because they've gone up. Well, I can't invest in a systematic trader because you've had, you know, a drawdown where if you were a stock in an e a stock curve, they would be buying the drawdown. So you need data. The one thing that is more predictable is your volatility. If you look at daily returns, whether it's a systematic trader or a discretionary trader, that is a reflection of the personality of the creator, the creator of the system or the discretionary trader. So that's something that we look at, at a lot. But I'm a big, you know, New York sports fan. And the question is, you know, why are the Knicks always bad? And why are the Spurs always good? It's not that the Knicks have different access to tools or players or that the Spurs get somebody at birth and put them in the desert and spring them on the NBA at 20. We all have access to the same tools. It's how do we do it? What's the approach? What's the discipline? Can we develop? Can we uh, nurture that type of strategy? Now, you're not going to go out and have a, a brand new system that you like and go, great, I'm going to take 100% of my equity and put it in this brand new system because you know that there's a probability that when you have a new system, I always say new systems equals new errors. Or, you know, when you have all these different rules and you don't want to have too many rules because I always like to say rule number 13 is that there's just exceptions to the prior 12 rules. Then that's not a system. That was a bit of a downer for me that you said the Knicks are bad. I just bought tickets actually to watch them in October, but there we are. <laughs> well, it's the season um, hasn't started, so there's always no hope. exactly. <laughs> it's I know there's always hope. Now, just staying with this, I mean, you know, I'm sure most of these legends in in that 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 you know the press love to to write about. Um, and, and I'm just still wondering a little bit, and I think this is what Jerry was was also trying to get at, but I'm not sure whether we, we kind of got there. And that is, do you think that these people are deep down actually are systematic? I, and they just don't talk about it in that way. They just talk about it in a completely different way. They use different narrative than we do, but but deep down, they they, they because I can't imagine that they're kind of seat-of-the-pants traders. They're... Every successful discretionary trader is rigorous and disciplined and has a consistent methodology. Mm. If that's how you define a system, then they are human systems. And as I said earlier, the market is always trying to make you lose your discipline. I know no great discretionary trader that goes, I'm going to average down, I'm going to average down. The sign behind Paul's desk, losers, average, losers. Averaging down works great until the one time when it doesn't work and then you're out of business. You're not a legend if you're out of business and you're not a successful systematic trader if you're out of business. Discipline before vision, the system embeds that a, a legendary, a successful discretionary trader has that discipline. So they're not seat of the pants at all.
Um, speaking about business, I mean, I would love to dig, you know hear a little bit more about uh, what you do now at at Quad Group. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting uh, business. I, I guess there's been maybe a few similar ones that's sort of uh, come up in the last few years. Uh, I think Jack Swagger is doing something about finding talent. Uh, and of course, and I don't know exactly whether that's included in in your business, but of course the, the really big funds like the mill- millenniums of the world where they have a lot of these sort of uh, smaller trading teams. Uh, I don't know if that's something you do as well, but but feel free to, to share a little bit more about that. So thank you. Uh we're not really trying to compete with the millenniums and 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 the other ones because they're really looking for very very big traders and i think that that's hard because there's a big demand curve for them and the supply curve of really big traders is not that large sort of by definition we're looking for smaller traders that trade you know long short equity futures and options that have capacity constrained alpha generating strategy now, in my mind, what the marketplace is looking for, for sort of people that have an average holding period of three months or less. So we sort of call it an earning cycle. So we we look, you need to have a, a real-time track record. You can't have taken, you know, a 10-year break and go, wow, I'm ready to get back into the business. Go look at my track record from back then. You have to be trading. If you have a team, we have options for that. We sort of have three different things. If you have a strategy, but not a business, so you're trading some of your own money, it's a system, discretionary, you have a track record, but you don't have uh, managing other outside money, you don't have an office space, you're not registered, you need to be in our space. If you have working capital, if you're out there and you're managing other money, then we can do an external managed account. And if you want to be in our space and you want to have an external fund, you want to start, that's your dream, then we can work with that as well. We can provide middle office, back office, and do some sort of revenue share. But this is a very difficult business. It really is a lot like sports. And every 10-year-old boy I know thinks they're going to be playing in the NBA. And I say to everybody, you got to figure it out by the time you're 13 or 14, you got to get on with your life. Don't tell me you bought Google and you're a hedge fund manager. So it's one of these things which is much more difficult said or much easier said than done, excuse me. And so we have to spend a lot of time analyzing that. And I do spend my a bunch of time looking at bad numbers. How many people do you think you, you see and, and, and of those, how many do you think or, or how many of those do you pick? I mean, how difficult is it to find true talent? It's extraordinarily difficult to find true talent. It's probably in the neighborhood of four to five percent. But my attitude is you need to look at everybody. You know, we're not super big. And I go to every person you named, you know, whether it's my old firm or for other firms you named, and I said, You've got the best names in the industry. Everybody sends you their resume, but if they can only manage twenty five million instead of you saying no send them down to me. They may not be there, but I'm always looking for that. You just talent. You just don't know where it's going to come from and what the methodology is. Now, do we need another person that day trades S&Ps? Probably not. So that's going to be a much higher hurdle. 
So it depends on the strategy and on the approach. And we saw all sorts of sort of discretionary, you know, VIX type traders. And after the XIV went under, the whole market dynamic changed. So do I need to see another guy that, you know, sells volatility and buy S&P as a hedge? Again, probably not. So it's a it's 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 pretty difficult. Uh, and we know the nature of asset management has changed as well. No one's going to pay us 2% to be long the Fane stocks. And by the way, if you know people, I'll take all the money that you want to allocate and pay me 2% and I'll buy all those stocks and hold them for you. But I kind of think that business is gone. Uh, what do you see for the hedge fund and CTA business in the future? How do you see it sort of evolving and getting better? Um, and yeah, what do, you th what do you think about that? I'm very optimistic because, as I said earlier, I think that we're we're at the end of a of a cycle. You're seeing that around the world. Uh, if you, for example, look at a stock a chart of the Euro stock bank index, uh, you'll realize that that stock index is down what ninety percent from from its high. Uh, the United States is the heart of markets and what you see is that countries around the world they've totally underperformed whether that's the eem uh whether that's individual countries and that's likely to come towards the u.s and that's going to be optimistic for our business and uh, i've always enjoyed your kind of uh analysis of the current situation um especially if it's something i haven't heard before so do you have anything that uh it's very confusing now as it relates to interest rates and stocks and bubbles and value. What do you see uh, for the U.S., the politics and the economy over the next few years? So I, I try to stay away from bubbles because everybody likes to think that something's gone up a bunch. So we'll say bond prices have gone up a bunch. So that's a bubble or where we see things are from a macro point of view is I start with the internet is the greatest deflationary machine ever built. And technology is making it possible to produce more at every price. And people don't realize it makes you easier to use it more efficiently. So if you have more supply and less demand, that puts downward price pressure. And unless the demand curve shift out, which is not what we're seeing, we're going to have this continued deflationary pressures. You're seeing that in the commodity markets, and I think that's going to have implications for the equity markets. And I always define at the end here, I'm a Democrat that believes in markets. Markets work. If we go back to our Nick's uh, uh, analog there, it doesn't, you don't need to be a PhD in economics to realize that it's easier to get a Nick ticket than it is to get a warrior ticket, right? Markets work. So I think that the deflationary pressures are building up and we have not addressed that from a policy perspective. And that's my biggest concern. I saw an article this week, or maybe it was last week, uh, from the guy who was featured in the big short, I think Michael Burry, I think his name is, about him talking about the, the big issues that he sees in terms of passive investing and and the size it commands today in, in, in our world. Um, is, is that something you worry about uh, in, in your work, Peter? 
Well, I, I don't worry about things that I, I can't control. So I don't worry about that. I look at that as part of what we were talking about, the construction of the indices and the fact that you have to buy more. So if the, a large cap individual stock has issues, which you started started to see in the fourth quarter of last year, that is going to magnify the speed at which these things go down if there's a correction. So what we saw in, in Amazon, what we saw in Google, markets and stocks don't grow to the sky. I also know that math works. So these stocks, whether it's Microsoft, et cetera, cannot compound at the same rate of speed over the next five years as they've done over the last five years, or they might be the only stocks in the world. So if you believe math works, it doesn't matter whether you're bullish or bearish. It's just that if I said earlier, trading is a second derivative, that second derivative is going to decline or certainly approach zero. And so if they all stay the same, the indices aren't going to go up a bunch. And that provides another opportunity for our business, which is one reason why I'm optimistic. Just just for me to, to understand that right, is um is is all the trading that happens at Quad Group model driven and systematic or is is there also discretionary traders? It's there? a hybrid. It's, it's a uh, hybrid. each individual or team has their own approach and we're overlaying making sure they're they're swimming within their lanes and following their discipline and we have risk right. management on top of that we're not we're not babysitters i always like to say this business isn't that hard a priori if i give you a dollar and you can lose 10 cents if you're down nine nine you're still in business if you lose 10 one i just want to send you a black sweater with a yellow qg on there saying you've meet your threshold it's we're going to close the account with the systematic trading just in terms of the instruments have you ever you know uh, seen purely systematic traders trading in say you know options non-linear instruments or is most of the things in like futures and stocks and etfs and stuff like that so the short answer is yes and also i have my own prejudices i'm not a huge options fan because i think that when you trade options uh as i go to said earlier records are made to be broken so you buy options betting the record's going to be broken you run out of money before it's broken and then everybody sells options and then you go bankrupt when it is broken so maybe i can just dive in here with something i i wasn't quite sure i fully understood so on one on one hand we we you you, you say discipline before vision or you you have to have the discipline right and and on this and, and on the same side we we say well we don't really know what the future holds so if we followed a disciplined approach and say it's a 10 vol strategy we don't know if the drawdown is going to be 10 15 20 it could be but if we believe in the stats if we believe in the history we should be okay but we don't know exactly where these drawdowns are so uh, I don't, and I don't know if you do this, but but you refer to this thing about you know giving your teams a specific uh, drawdown level. So if you're down ten point one, you're out. That I, and I, we see that a lot with these big shops where they give them very very tight drawdown levels and and they're out. And that I don't quite understand because it's almost like we're not accepting the fact that we can't, if we're following our systems, we're doing all the right things. We just don't know exactly where the drawdown is going to be, but it doesn't mean the strategy is broken. 
So how does that, how do these two things marry, giving people such a specific drawdown level, yet wanting them to follow the system and the rules? Because we don't pay management fees. We want you to trade smaller and be there for a while. When I give an allocation to somebody, I can be like, you can be an idiot and lose it all in a day, or you can be like most people and lose it more slowly over time. It's a really hard business. So we have to have that internal systematic discipline. So I tell everybody, look, it's make it, take it. We're not saying a 10% drawdown from peak. We're saying we give you this capital and this is where you are. If you start making money and you want to be more aggressive, that goes back to the open trade equity question. We're okay with that. Show, demonstrate that you can actually make a layup before you go out to the three-point line. Yeah, a lot of uh, what Peter has said, it, it, um, it's sometimes said differently in terms of money management and risk control and these ideas of incorporating open trade profit into your trade level. He mentioned that kind of earlier. And then the unit sizes, you know, how, how big are you trading? What leverage are you trading? Are you doing essentially the same trade? You know, do you have 14 bonds on? Uh, I think for some people that's low right now. They have way more than 14 bonds on. Uh, and so I think in, in an earlier, you know, uh, you were saying that people have all the successful people have s similar characteristics. And to me, it, a lot of what you said was about money management and risk control and, uh, you know, okay, you're maybe sort of average or above average as relates to entries, exits, uh, discretion or systematic, but you got to get that money management, uh, cut back when you lose, you know, back in the day. Uh, we traded um, very large, and uh, after '84ish, uh, I think you know we were making about 200% a year, shorter-term trend following, with very strict uh, position reducing and, and uh, trade size reducing rules that almost overwhelmed the system itself. You know, you kind of uh, can kind of dominate with uh, some of the money management rules, and. Uh, the world has changed a lot since then, but, uh, you know, it was definitely, a, you know, successful and a great way of doing things. But uh, no doubt over the years, uh, I get confused as to where does the trend following begin and the risk control and capital preservation start. It's all, to me, all one big thing for all of us CTAs who are trading so many different markets and taking small losses and going long and short. Um, I personally don't fall target, but that's the European CTA contribution to finance, uh, how important it is and necessary and great it is to sort of uh, target, always try to get to a similar vol target every day. Getting a vol target every day is virtually impossible uh, because, you know, markets ranges expand or not, but what's, uh, possible is to sort of say, what's my maximum vol target over time. And that's what we try to, you know, encourage from the beginning. Don't start off in the ditch. I think another thing we've all been trying to get you to tell us, um, for the hour is, uh, <laughs> when you, um, 
and, and it's, you definitely don't have to, just make sure we're all being clear. Uh, but uh, is this idea, and I'll put it in terms of the quad group, uh, you get this manager and you, you like him and he's kind of uh, using some price and some trend and he's like, you know, he's maybe not a a, a, a turtle style trend follower, but he's, 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 he's using a lot of good techniques that maybe trend followers use. In order to help him grow or grow his business or grow his business with you and get clients to invest in your, your trader, what do you do? How do you help them? Not, not the psychological or the counseling or the coaching, but you say, no, no, no. Uh, you're not going to put that in writing for these clients. You're being too transparent. We're going to have to mystify it a little bit. And plus, you know, I have friends who uh, trade in New York for hedge funds and pretend that they're not trend following. So they're scouring uh, some story about why they're short soybeans. Yeah, so everybody likes to have a story that that's that's part of it. Uh, when we're working with somebody and they want to raise additional assets, so first of all, we want to grow them. So we one thing about you, which is unique with us, is we give them uh, an initial allocation and we predefine levels at which they're going to grow it's one nice thing in which to partner with us so it's not like hey here's an account one and done maybe we'll raise maybe we won't we have a process and a methodology to do that they like that in terms of growing and 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 building the business yes the the deck matters the presentation matters of course performance is always most important but it's 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 the approach, and for us, as I said, somebody getting lucky in in one market doesn't make them a successful trader. So what are they doing? What's their diversification? And then how do they perform over different cycles? And of course, we're looking at cross correlations not only among to the market in general, the equity, but also among the different people we have allocations to. When you meet all of these managers, uh, Peter, and with all your experience, I mean, what what are some of the most important questions uh, that you ask them? Wow! For for you to get that, you know, that kind of yes, this this really has some something to it. I want to see, particularly on the discretionary side, if 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 they're following their discipline. And we've had literally examples where they come in and say, "Well, we're doing this. We're kind of swing traders." We're, we're looking at, you know, four-day lows where our stop and so forth and so on. And then we look at their track record and we simulate it and it looks good. And then we have an allocation to them and they're not doing at all what they said. I'll pull the money almost immediately, right? Getting lucky and if they make is not a long-run solution. So we ask all sorts of questions depending on where it is, but we're more data-dependent than anything. And and I just sort of want to end with this this point with the nature of technology is people think, well, it doesn't really matter. You can do business with anybody because it's technology, whether that's execution or allocation. And the irony is, if you can do business with anybody, you're only going to do business with people you like. And I want to like the people that we allocate to. I want them to be humble. I want them to be hungry. The days of some person sitting in the corner who, you know, sort of annoys everybody but makes money in our business, that's gone. 
Yeah, no, very good point. Let me just, as we bring this to to a close, I'm sure there might be one or two questions more, but let me just uh, quickly run through uh, performance so far this month. Uh, uh, and then, uh, Moritz and Jerry, if you want to uh, think about uh, a, another last question before we wrap up. Um, but as of Thursday evening, uh, I think Friday was an okay day for most CTAs, but as of Thursday at least, uh, the BTOP50 index uh, was up 0.19% for the month, up 12.53 for the week, sorry, for the month. Um, sucked for the year. I'm, I'm all over the place here. Let's do that again. The BTOP50 index is up 0.19 for the month and up 12.53 for the year. Sucked NCT index down 1.85 for the month, up 9.82 for the year. The Sokjian Trend Index uh, is down 2% for the uh, month and up 17.5% for the year. And the Short-Term Traders Index down 73 basis points, but still up 2.3% for the year. And finally, the Bridge Alternatives Index down 1.48% for the month and up 15.101% for the year. So, Moritz, Jerry, any final thoughts, questions uh, for, for Peter? No, just thanks for being here. It's been a blast. I look forward to seeing you soon in person. Uh, same here. And, you know, when you guys are in, in New York uh, the next few weeks, let me know. And Jerry, of course, uh, will continue to uh, intellectually have some fun. <laughs> thanks, Peter. And by the way, opening season, kickoff, let's go Jets. <laughs> absolutely peter yes. thank you so much for spending part of your sunday with us we really appreciate this this has been a real treat for us and for our listeners um that's it for this first year or, or year one anniversary edition from jerry morris and me thanks so much for spending part of your day with us we're grateful for your support and we can't wait to be back with you on next week's edition Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.